Good morning again, Calvary. We are in the middle of a series as we work through the book of James. And Pastor Ben has wisely called this series Portraits of Maturity. As we work through James week after week, James is painting for us every week a portrait of what the mature Christian life looks like. That's very important. He is showing us what does a mature Christian look like. Portrait after portrait after portrait. One thing mature Christians and everybody will face is uncertainty. Life is uncertain. And I imagine it doesn't take much convincing for everybody here who's been alive for the last four years to realize that life is uncertain. And so the question we'll be asking and trying to answer today is, how do we face the uncertainty of life? How do we face the uncertainty of life? And what we'll see in James chapter 4 verse 13 through 17, is James provides us with two alternatives to answer that question. One option is the man-centered approach, man-centered planning. And then the other alternative is the God-centered approach or God-centered planning. And each approach answers that question differently. How do we face uncertainty? Either the man-centered approach or the God-centered approach. And so that's what we'll be looking at as we work through James chapter 4, verse 13 through 17. So with that, I'm going to pray, and then we'll read James 4, 13 through 17. God, we thank you for this opportunity to come together as a body to worship you. We pray that we would be ready to hear from you and to receive from you. And we pray that you would humble us that you would make us more like Christ, and that you would reveal to us and remind us that we are desperate, needy, weak sinners in need of a great and glorious and powerful God. And so we ask that you would do that by the power of your Spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. James chapter 4, verse 13 through 17. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Before we look at those two alternatives, I want you to notice something about the context especially in verse 17. So let's look at verse 17 right now and notice the very first word. So, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. 
That word is telling us, like we learned last week with the word therefore, that James is making a conclusion. He is drawing a conclusion based off what he just said in verses 13 through 16. He's saying, you know what to do now. You know the right thing. So do it. Very James-like, that we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. He's saying, you know now how you are to live. So do it. And this brings up a distinction you might hear, that there's a difference between sins of commission and sins of omission. A sin of commission is when you actually do something actively that's sinful. If I steal something from my neighbor, that would be a sin of commission. A sin of omission is when I should have did something, but I didn't. So I should have helped my neighbor. I should have helped him shovel his driveway or something, but I didn't. And so James is saying, you know what to do, so now do it. And I hope that raises for you the question, well, what is it that we're supposed to do? I'm glad you asked. Let's look. Those are the two alternatives. So let's look at the first alternative that James presents before us, the man-centered approach to uncertainty. We see this in verses 13, 14, and then verse 16. This approach answers the question, how do we face uncertainty? By trusting in our own ability. How do we face uncertainty? By trusting in our own ability. And James is going after, as we'll see, not the problem of planning. Planning isn't the problem. The problem is the attitude underneath the planning. Plans aren't the problem. It's the attitude. It's the heart behind it. And the attitude behind it is this self-sufficient, this attitude that I'm a lot of myself. I can do it. I don't need anybody or anything. I don't need God. It doesn't matter if God exists. I can do it by myself. I'm self-sufficient. And so we see this in verses 13 through 14. Let's look at those now. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, you will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. James then goes on, if we go to verse 16, and he goes directly after the attitude behind this planning. And I want to mention this very clearly because we could read verse 13 and think, well, what's the problem with that? I do that all the time. I plan and I do things. Again, the problem is the attitude. Verse 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. It's evil. Now let's revisit these plans one more time. Did you notice what was missing in these plans? In terms of a plan, it has all the features you would think would be in a plan. It's time-oriented. There's a time. It says today or tomorrow we'll go to this place and spend a year there. So that's for a good plan. There's an actual action. We're going to go to this place and we're going to trade. We're going to do something. And then there's a goal or a purpose for the plan and make a profit. So all the features of a good plan are here, but something is missing, something glaring. Did you notice it? It's God. Where is he? He's not in the plan. They have a great plan on paper. This might be a plan that Matt Jocks would give you for your rehab. Here's your plan. Three days a week, 
20 minutes a day, you're going to do these stretches so your shoulder gets better. And Matt would tell you, God better be in your plan. But, the, but God is missing in this plan. He's not in there. And it's because the person has a self-sufficient attitude. They have a plan and they're absolutely certain about it. There's no hedging at all. They don't say, well, we'll go to this town and we're hoping we'll make a profit. No, we will make a profit. They're certain. There's no room for God in their plan. And James says, this is evil. Why would that be evil? Because the person is treating themselves as if they are God. Only God has that kind of certainty, but they're living and planning as if they have what only God has. So look at how James responds to this attitude in verse 14. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. We don't know the future. We can't predict the future. We're not certain about the future. But do you know who does know the future? God knows the future. James goes on. For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Our life is fleeting. Sometimes I like to think about it as money in my bank account. It's here today, then gone tomorrow. I don't know where it goes, but that's what life is. It's short, it's quick. You don't know when it's going to end. It's fleeting. But you know whose life is not fleeting? God's life. Matt reminded us God is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He was, he is, he is to come. He's eternal. God is not fleeting, but we are. And so this planning, this attitude is a self-sufficient attitude. And it's evil. And we are fooling ourselves if we think we can predict the future with any certainty. It's a foolish thing to do. And I have been a fool for a lot of my life with this. I remember as a young boy, just loving and looking forward to when I would see my grandpa, Grandpa Lund. He, I was a lot like him. We're both jokesters and pranksters, and he, you know, he's pretty lighthearted. And he loved to go fishing. And so I remember looking forward every time we'd visit him to go fishing. I remember one time in particular, I'm like, I can't wait to see Grandpa Lund. We're going to go fishing. This will be great. Well, that weekend, my dad received a phone call, and Grandpa Lund was killed in a car accident. Life is fleeting. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. And my plans changed. And I can give you example after example of when I made a plan, and it changed. What kind of fool am I to think that I would know with any certainty what the future will hold? Jesus himself goes after this foolish attitude behind planning. In Luke chapter 12, verse 16 through 21, and he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. 
eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Calvary, we must prepare for eternity. Life is fleeting. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. And we don't know what tonight will bring. We don't know what this afternoon will bring. And so we need to prepare that tonight, today, you may be spending it in eternity. This night, God may require your soul. And what will he find you doing? Are you ready? It could be this night he could require your soul or my soul. And so we have to put off these foolish ways of thinking, this idea that, you know what, I'm going to kind of stay on the edges of Christianity and explore and just really never come to any concrete conclusions. I'm going to explore Jesus, but I'll make a decision later. I'll have time. Know that I say this from a place of love. That is a foolish thing to do. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. Life is fleeting. It's just as foolish to think, you know what? One of these days, when the opportunity is just right, I'll share Christ with my neighbor. When the stars align and everything's perfect and they come up to me and they ask me, tell me about Jesus and the gospel. Then I'll share Christ with him or her. Let me dispel something for you. That won't happen. 99% of the time, that will never happen. You will have to tell them. And you know what? It'll be awkward. And it'll be uncomfortable. But you can't wait for the future. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. We aren't guaranteed tomorrow. We can't predict the future. We must prepare for eternity. And when God requires your soul, what will he find you doing? Will you be ready to meet him? We don't know what tomorrow will bring. So that's the first option before us. James gives us two options. The first, the man-centered approach to planning. Now the second is the God-centered approach to planning. So I'll put it this way. We just learned what we're not supposed to do. Now let's figure out, well, what should we do instead? So what is the God-centered approach to that question? How do we face uncertainty? By resting in God's sovereignty. We don't face uncertainty by trusting in our abilities. We rest in God's sovereignty. That's the God-centered approach. We don't trust our abilities. We rest in his sovereignty. And God's sovereignty is his rule, his reign, his control over everything, over all aspects of life. God is ruling and he is reigning. And when you rest in his sovereignty, it opens your hands up from your plans. God has had to pry my hands loose of so many of my plans and humble me. When I held onto these plans with a tight fist, his sovereignty rips those hands apart because we're not in control. God is in control. We see this in verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. 
Notice the very first word, instead. He's laying before us a contrast, these two alternatives. One is the man-centered approach. Instead of that, we have the God-centered approach, where God and his sovereignty is at the center of our plans, and that forms the attitude underneath our plans. We can't be certain of the future, but God is certain, and we can be certain that he's ruling. And this theme of God's sovereignty, that if the Lord wills, runs throughout the whole Bible from beginning to end. And so I'm going to give you a brief sampling of God's providence and his sovereignty, that he is ruling and reigning, and we aren't. We see God's sovereignty over the inanimate world. Psalm 104, verse 14. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth. God rules and reigns over animals. Matthew chapter 10, verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. We see that God is sovereign and rules over seemingly random events. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. We see that God rules and reigns over the nations and the affairs of the nations. Job chapter 12, verse 23. He makes nations great, and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. We see that God rules and reigns over every aspect of our lives. Psalm 139, verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God even rules and reigns over disasters. Amos chapter 3, verse 6. Is a trumpet blown in a city? And the people are not afraid. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? In short, God rules and reigns over everything. He is sovereign. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. There are two wrong ways to respond to this. One is to then say, well, I guess it doesn't matter what I decide. I guess my actions don't matter. I guess my choices don't matter. That's wrong, and that's an unbiblical response. Because what we see in Scripture is that on the one hand, God is completely sovereign, but yet we also make meaningful choices and our decisions matter. Both are true. The other mistake to respond to this is by thinking that, well, now I always have to qualify everything I say with the phrase, if the Lord wills. Now, I think we should say that from time to time, because if we believe that, and if that's in our heart, it should naturally spill out of us, that we should naturally say it. But no, you don't have to always say, if the Lord wills. What is important is that you would rest in God's sovereignty, that that would be the attitude of your heart, a humble heart a dependent heart, 
a needy heart on God. Here's how John Calvin put it. But no scruple ought to be entertained as though it were a sin to omit them, the words, if the Lord wills. For we read everywhere in the scriptures that the holy servants of God spoke unconditionally of future things, when yet they had it as a principle fixed in their minds that they could do nothing without the permission of God. This whole week, as I've been preparing for this passage and this message, it has been so convicting for me. And as some of you know, I am the resident, pastoral resident here at Calvary, and it will come to an end this summer. And so I am in the season of trying to find a job now, looking for a pastoral job. So if you know one, let me know. But I am looking for a job, and I apply, I've applied for a lot of different opportunities And God has had to, time and time again, rip open my hands from my plans and humble me. To say, will you trust me and my plan for you? I'll apply for a job, really excited about it, and I hear back, nope, we're going forward with somebody else. Or I apply for a job, it looks great, and as we go on, we realize, nope, there's this, there's going to be a problem, there's maybe a doctrinal problem or something, this won't work either. And so over and over again, God is humbling me and teaching me to have that posture of, if the Lord wills, we will move to this place, and Lord willing, I'll pastor a church. If he wills. And so, by God's grace, we're planning humbly to see where God might lead us, where he might lead me. For us, Calvary, that means we need to let go of our presumptuous plans and take hold of of the God who is ruling and reigning sovereignly. One commentator captured this well. He said, Never will you feel more secure than in the consciousness that you have no security for a single hour. Never will you feel more secure than in the consciousness that you have no security for a single hour. When we realize that we have no security, we turn to the one who has it all. We turn to the one who is ruling and reigning, who is secure. And that's exactly what Jesus did in one of the hardest moments of his life. In Luke chapter 22, when he's in the garden praying, Here's what Jesus does in Luke chapter 22, verse 42. He prays and he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And it's that cup of wrath that Jesus was dreading that was poured out on him for our sins, for my sins and your sins, that's at the heart of God's own plan. Have you ever thought about that for a moment? We make plans, but do you realize that God has made a plan? God has planned something? Like any good plan, God's plan is time-oriented. He has an action, 
And he has a goal with this plan. Let's look at Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, and look at what God's plan is. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, it's time-oriented. And what did God do? Let's keep reading. God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law. And what was God's goal? Why did he send Jesus? We read in verse 5. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That's God's plan. The plan of salvation to save sinners like you and me. Sinners because we've broken his law and trusted in our own abilities, our own self-sufficiency. Sinners who think they can do it. Sinners who think they're in control. But at the center of God's redemptive plan is Jesus Christ, who doesn't just say, if the Lord wills, I will live and do this or that, but says, if the Lord wills, I will die on a cross for you and for me. And church, the way we respond to this plan is the same way we should do any of our planning, humbly and acknowledging our need and our dependence on him. We can't save ourselves. Only God can save us. Only God can rescue us. In the same way, when we plan, we acknowledge that we're not self-sufficient, and we humbly rest in God's sovereignty instead of trusting in our own ability. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would take away our confidence about the future so that we might pray like Christ. Not our will, but yours be done. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.